Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 276. Today is October 28th, 2018. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Today, I want to get right into our content, and that's to provide you with the five reasons why, even though we're in a market meltdown right now, I remain bullish and optimistic about this stock market. And before I get into those five reasons, let me give you a couple prefaces to that. The content that I'm going to give you is specific to the market that we're in right now and what I think is going to take place over the next, say, year and a half to two years. But the rationale that I'm using is relevant regardless of what market you're in. So even if you're listening to this at some time in the future, the content will still be relevant to you. So you can listen to this information today as to what I think about this market. But the more important thing is for you to grasp the concepts and principles and the reasons that I'm making these decisions. That's what's going to help you in the future. The other thing I want to mention is that I've been very optimistic this year. But what I want to emphasize is is that I'm not a perma bull, nor am I someone that believes in buy and holding. I do believe in active trading. You know that there are times when I've been very bearish. So I'm not a perma bull. But like I've talked about many times, I also don't trade just for the sake of trading. Last year, we saw extremely low volatility in the stock market. There was almost no reason to make trades because the market kept going up. And on the rare occasions when it did pull back, there was absolutely no momentum or volume. So there was no reason to really make big changes to your portfolio. Now, 2018 has been much more volatile than 2017. However, if you look on it on a historical basis, the volatility really hasn't been that extreme. It's just extreme in terms of recent history. I have made very few trades this year, and those trades that I've made have mostly been purchases on buying the dip as opposed to trying to sell out at the tops and rebuying back in. With a few exceptions, I've held my long-term positions And then I've taken any extra money that I've had, and I've tried to use that in buying up the dips. Now, I'll tell you why I did that as we get into these five reasons why I'm optimistic in this market. But I bring this up now because I do want to make the point, particularly for those of you that may be new to the Wellsteading Podcast, that I am not a perma bull. I don't always buy and hold the market. I was extremely negative on the market, particularly at times during 2014, 15, and 16. The reason for that was that we were not only seeing the decline in the growth rate of corporate profits, but we were seeing a material deterioration in the actual nominal price of corporate profits. So, for example, in 2013, S&P 500 earnings were approximately 100. That number may be off a little bit. I don't have the chart in front of me, but somewhere around 100. Over the ensuing years, we saw that number drop down to, say, like 90. So it wasn't that we just had a slowdown in the growth rate of profits. We actually had a decrease in the nominal profits that were earned by the S&P 500. If you remember back then, this was happening at a time when the economy was still growing and the word on Wall Street was that we were in an earnings recession. The economy wasn't in a recession, but the earnings were. And you have to remember that the long-term performance of the stock market ultimately always comes back to earnings. So when corporate profits were down, I was concerned. We don't have that problem now. We haven't had that problem for a couple years. And based on very conservative estimates, we're not going to have that problem going forward for the next, say, 18 to 24 months. That's given the data that we have today. And finally, the last point I'll bring up before we get into our five reasons why I'm optimistic, I will say, hey, listen, all the way through to the end, because you may actually hear me talk about 
six or seven bonus reasons why I remain optimistic. It'll all depend on how much energy I have left by the time we get through these first five. So here we go. Number one, it comes down to valuations. Like I just mentioned, ultimately, the long-term performance of the stock market or of any equity comes down to what its actual value is. And we determine the value of stocks based on their earnings. Right now, as I record this, the S&P 500 is $26.59. Earnings are estimated to be at about $159. Now, I suspect as we get into the end of the year, they may go higher than that. But if you just take those two numbers and you divide the price of the S&P 500, $26.59, by the earnings, $159, you'll come up with a price-to-earnings ratio of approximately 16.7. Now, is that a higher earnings ratio than what we've seen historically? Well, it depends on what your historical perspective is. If you go over the last 100 years, the average price per earnings ratio was probably closer to 16 times earnings. We've talked about this many times, and I've talked about why in recent years it's been higher than that because interest rates have been so low. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but let's just assume that the long, long-term historical rate should be at 16 times. So yes, right now we are a little high. However, if you look at the rate over the last 10 or 20 years, it's significantly higher than 16 times earnings, probably closer to 20. And so based on that type of a ratio, no, I do not think that this market is overvalued. Again, this has to do with the low interest rate environment that we've been in, particularly for the last 10 years. But in any case, no matter how you measure these valuations, they are not astronomical. They're not dot-com bubble crazy valuations that we saw in 2000 when the dot-com market blew up. Corporate profits have never been stronger. Now, have these corporate profits been juiced up by easy money, quantitative easing, artificially depressed interest rates, the Trump corporate tax cuts? Yes, absolutely. But the bottom line here is that it doesn't really matter why they're where they're at. The fact of the matter is, is they are where they are. And for now, as I discuss this one particular point, let's not worry about what may happen. Let's just talk about the reality of where we are. And not only where we are today, but where we're likely to be over the next 18 to 24 months, because that's the period of time I'm investing in. Right now, I'm not managing my portfolio for what may happen in 5 years or 10 years or 20 years. I'm not managing my portfolio for what bad things may occur because of the horrible policies that are being made by politicians and by the central banks. That's a topic for another day with another discussion. Right now, I'm just concerned about finishing up 2018, and where things are likely headed in 2019 and 2020. So my emphasis is on here and now. And when I look at here and now, and I look at where profits are likely headed using conservative, realistic earnings expectations for the future, and these rates are actually declining, they're not going up, that's because a lot of the stimulus that's been in this economy, because of low interest rates, because of quantitative easing, because of stimulative fiscal policy, because of the Trump tax cuts, those effects are diminishing and petering out as we get farther away from them. And so while corporate profits went up 20% this year, they're only likely to go up 10% next year and maybe 6% in the following year. And that's irregardless who wins the midterm elections, right? The budgets are set. The regulatory environment is what it is. It's not going to change drastically in the next 18 months. 
And these numbers that I'm giving you are also based on the fact that no new policies come out that further create more stimulus. And we just don't know. There could very much be more stimulus coming. But we also have to work with what we have. And from an earnings estimate perspective, what we have is that in 2020 is that S&P 500 earnings will very much likely be at least 185.4. And so for those of you that are petrified about what's happening in the market today, let's just look at the price of the S&P 500 again. It's at 26.59. If you divide that number by the very realistic earnings that we're likely to see in 2020, that drops the forward price per earnings ratio of the S&P 500 at today's price down to about 14.3. Looking at where earnings are likely to be in the next 18 to 24 months, today's price of the S&P 500 at 26.59 leads me to believe that stocks are on sale today. The number two reason that I remain optimistic about this stock market is that the challenges that we face are not existential, but they're simply based on policy. Right now, the price of oil is where it's at, not based on the reserves of oil that are in the ground and our ability to get it out at an affordable market price, but they're where they are because the Trump administration is placing sanctions on Iran, and that's driven up the price of oil. And even with that, you've seen the price of oil come down significantly in the last couple of weeks. But the only reason they got up to the levels they did was because of pending sanctions on oil production from Iran. If you want to look at that a little farther, you can even look at the country of Venezuela, which, oddly enough, has among the largest oil reserves in the world, but their government is so incompetent and their economy is so ineffective that they can't get that oil out of the ground. Now, that's not going to last forever. Eventually, Venezuela will work out its issues, and that oil will come back onto the world market. Likewise, eventually these policy decisions with Iran will change and that Iranian oil will come back onto the market. So oil prices right now are not higher than they normally would be because of market reasons that we're running out of fossil fuels. It's the contrary. We have plenty of petroleum reserves. We simply have policy decisions which are restricting the supply. The same can be said with Federal Reserve policy. Right now, there's a lot of fear and worry that the Federal Reserve will continue to raise interest rates, that that'll cause the yield curve to invert, and that that'll not only squelch the economy, but it'll crash the stock market. And all that would be true and likely to happen if, in fact, the Federal Reserve does continue to raise interest rates. But again, this is a policy decision, and that policy can change drastically overnight. It isn't written in stone. We don't have a certainty that the Fed rate is going to go up to 4 or 5 or 6 or 7%. In fact, I would argue that there's no way that's going to happen. But without even making that argument, let's simply stick to the fact that these Fed rate decisions are based on policy. And what you should know about that policy, regardless of what you've been hearing in the media about these rates are inevitably going to take place, if you look at the Federal Reserve's actual numbers on the projection of the U.S. economy, they are projecting what I just talked about a minute ago with the corporate profits, that the stimulus effects of things like the Trump tax cuts are going to wear off in ensuing years. And so while the U.S. economy has grown at, say, 3% this year, they're only projecting a 2.5% growth rate next year. And when we get into 2020, they're looking at a 2% growth rate. Right? 2% growth rate is the high end of what we had over the last eight years with Obama. 
So the Federal Reserve that supposedly is going to squelch the economy by raising interest rates, well, how does that narrative hold up if their very numbers say that the economy is naturally cooling off to begin with? That we're not headed for 4 or 5 or 6% growth rates, which would be justified with higher interest rates. Their very numbers are projecting that the economy is slowing down, not accelerating, and that it's going to go back to what they call the new normal, which was about a 2% growth rate. So from a policy perspective, if in fact the economy is only going to be growing at 2%, why would they be raising interest rates to 5 or 6%? It makes absolutely no sense. Look at the other things that everybody are fearful with the economy. Oh, we have trade wars, or people are worried about the effects of tariffs. Well, remember what I said before about the October surprise with Trump? For all the bluster and all the negotiating and all the saber-rattling that, that has gone on for the last two years with the renegotiation of NAFTA, what happened? Right at the final hour, at the 11th hour, all three parties came together and they worked out an agreement that all three of them said they wouldn't have signed earlier. Well, they ended up signing it. Has anything really changed? Well, you be the judge of that. But I'm telling you, it's all simply policy decisions that people got their panties in a wad over that at the end of the day really didn't matter. So as far as my second point here about policy, which way will it go? Well, who knows? I don't know who's going to win the midterm elections. And even if I did, I couldn't say for certain how that's going to affect policy. Donald Trump can change his positions overnight. We've seen that happen. And as far as the Congress working with him or against him, depending upon if the Democrats take over, well, I can draw out scenarios on either way how that could work out from a policy standpoint. Having Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House could actually be favorable for Donald Trump because it would give him the perfect villain to fight against for the next two years that he can't do if his own party controls the House. But the point I want to emphasize here is that we are not experiencing existential threats like we did in previous crises. In 2000, when the dot-com bubble blew up, it blew up because corporations were not making profits. It wasn't a matter of policy. It was a matter of the cold, hard facts that you had companies that weren't earning any money. That's not the case today. In 2008, when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, that wasn't over policy decisions. It was because the corporation had no money. There was a liquidity crisis. Likewise, when people were walking away from their mortgages, you can argue that the reason they did was based on policy, but the actual fact of the matter, the reason they were walking away from their mortgages and the reason that caused a collapse in real estate prices at that point had nothing to do with policy. It had to do with the realistic fact that people were refusing to make good on their mortgages because they felt the valuations of their properties were not realistic. Those were existential threats. They were not something that could easily be changed with policy. Policy eventually did overcome those problems, but it took about eight years and trillions and trillions of central bank dollars to compensate for that existential threat. But again, none of these reasons are where we are right now with this current stock market meltdown. Right now, prices are depressed in the stock market because people are afraid of what might happen, what policy changes may occur, whether more tariffs are imposed, or whether interest rates go up. These are all fears of policy decisions that may or may not occur, but they're not existential, realistic fears of what's really occurring. That's a difference with a big distinction. 
And the reason I remain optimistic is that I don't necessarily think that all these policies are going to take effect. Now let's go on to number three. And my third point is the corollary of my second point. You see, we may have all these policy decisions that people are worried about, but the fact of the matter is we are living in a period of abundance. Right now, we are living through a period where we have abundant energy supplies. Right now, we have an abundance of virtually all the natural resources we need, from petroleum to copper to iron ore. Pick any commodity you want. Agricultural products, gold, silver, uranium. None of these are showing pricing problems that would be occurring if we didn't have a supply that was easily keeping up with market demand. We have an abundance not only of natural resources and energy, but we have an abundance of technology. And in fact, the reason that we have the abundance in natural resources is because of our technology. The reason that we have all the petroleum and natural gas that we do is because of the advances that have been made in horizontal drilling. That's an application of big data, of robotics, of artificial intelligence. It's technology that's been applied to the energy sector. We also have an abundance of energy because of all the improvements that have been made to the cars and the machinery and the utilities and the appliances that we use that use energy. Our cars get better gas mileage. Our refrigerators use less electricity. Our furnaces burn less natural gas. We also have technology on the renewable side. We're getting vast amounts of energy from solar and wind energy and other technologies. So when you bundle that all together, we're able to mine and refine our natural resources more efficiently. We're able to use them more efficiently and we're able to use less of them because we have alternative renewable energy sources. And so, no, we are not in a Mad Max apocalyptic economy where the world is running out of resources. It's exactly the opposite. And an abundance of energy and resources and technology means not only a higher standard of living for everybody on the planet, it also means higher corporate profits and a continued growing economy. And speaking of a growing economy, that gets into our fourth point. The fourth reason I remain optimistic is that the economy in the U.S. as well as the global economy is in fact growing. Now that may not be what you're hearing in the news, whether it's the alternative media or the mainstream media. Everybody likes to focus on the negative, but look at the actual numbers. The U.S. economy now is growing this year at over 3%. That's a number that they said that we weren't going to reach. We were at the new normal of 2% or less growth rate. Well, because of policy changes, guess what happened? We did grow in excess of 3%. And if we have more stimulative-type policy decisions, we will continue to grow at a rate beyond 3%. And even if we don't, even if we grow at the rate that the Federal Reserve is projecting now with their current static analysis where they're saying we're going to grow 2.5% next year and 2% in 2020, well, that's still positive growth. It's true that it's a slowdown in the growth rate, but the growth itself is positive. It's not recessionary. And you have to remember with the stock market, it can fluctuate greatly, but it really only collapses. It really only falls significantly when you're in a recession. So from a U.S. perspective, whether we do or don't get more positive policy decisions that create and stimulate the economy, even if we just go back to the 2% growth rate, that's still a positive number from where we are today. It's still advancing the ball of the economy. And looking globally, we're seeing the same thing happen. Japan and Europe have just started to grow over the last couple years for the first time in you know, more than a decade. 
Now, they're not growing at huge rates. They're not growing as much as the U.S., but they are growing. They are at least moving in positive territory. And when you look at large developing markets like China and India, yes, again, their growth rates have slowed down, but they're still growing at a substantial rate. China, with a population of more than a billion and a half people, they're growing at 6%. When you factor that against their population, that accounts for a substantial growth in the global economy, just on a per capita basis. And India, with even more people, is growing even more rapidly. India is growing at 8%. The growth in those countries is going to continue regardless of the outcome of the midterm elections. One reason I've been so upbeat and positive about growth in international markets is because they're out of favor right now with mainstream Wall Street. The Chinese stock market price-per-earnings ratio is something like 11. 11 times earnings. Think about that. This is an economy of a billion and a half people with a growth rate of 6%, and the premium for owning that stock market is only about 11 times. I think the stocks in China, as well as the stocks in the emerging market, are on sale, even with the projected subdued growth rates. Look at the emerging markets in general. Right now, they're only growing at about the rate of the U.S., maybe a little larger. That means that those people's purchasing power is increasing, as well as their consumption rate. And so they're buying more shoes, and they're buying more cosmetics, and they're buying more cars, and more houses, and more cell phones. And that translates not only into growth, but into substantial growth. Nominal growth that can far exceed anything that can come out of developed markets like in the United States or Europe, with our population bases of only, you know, 320, 350 million, depending upon which geographic area you're looking at in the developed market. It pales in comparison of the 4 trillion people that are every day increasing their standard of living in the emerging markets. That's growth that's going to take place in nominal terms that will far exceed any amount that we've ever seen in the history of humanity. Now, finally, number five, and this comes back to the policy decision of the trade war. I think the trade war and the threat over tariffs is being way too much hyped in the media. Again, these are just policy decisions. Even if there is a trade war, even if Trump imposes 25% tariffs on everything that's imported from China, how much of an impact will it really have? Well, I'm not going to deny that it won't have an impact, but I don't think it's anywhere near the hysteria that's being talked about in the media. Now, let me give you two quick examples. The first thing is you have to remember about tariffs. They're based on the manufacturing price, not on the retail price. So if you're one of those people that are crazy enough to go out and buy a pair of Nike shoes for $200, and you're saying, hey, if these things get raised 25% uh, tariff, I won't be able to afford my luxurious running shoes or basketball shoes or whatever the heck you buy from Nike. And you're saying that because you're thinking about the retail price. Because a 25% tariff on the retail price of your Nike shoes would mean that the price that you pay would now go up to $250. But that's not the way it works. The tariffs will be implemented on the cost of goods sold to Nike, not on the cost that Nike is imposing on you. So what is Nike actually paying for those tennis shoes? Well, I don't know. I've been out of that market for a long time, but I got to tell you, I spent 20 years in the manufacturing environment. I've done my time in China. I've seen the cost of actual manufactured products like athletic shoes and furniture and other type of components that come in from Asia. And I'm not exaggerating to tell you that the price you pay for a product 
is significantly, significantly astronomically more expensive than what it costs to make it. I would not be surprised that a $200 pair of Nike shoes costs less than $5 to manufacture. And when you look at it from that perspective, you can see that the tariff war is less impactful than you may have otherwise thought because the price of your shoes are not going to go up $50. Even if the full impact of the tariff were passed on to you, that $200 pair of shoes may only go up $1.25 because that's how much a 25% tariff would be on a $5 product. Now that may be an extreme example, but it's not an erroneous or an outrageous example. And even if you want to look at it on the macro level, think of it in these terms. Using round numbers, Trump is talking about imposing 25% tariffs on all the products coming in from China, which is roughly $500 billion worth of products. That sounds like a big number, but compare it to the overall U.S. GDP, which is not quite, but it's approaching $20 trillion. So if you think of it in percentage terms, if you take those $500 billion products imported from China and you divide that by the U.S.'s $20 trillion economy, that's only about 2.5% of GDP. When you look at it in those terms, you may have a different perspective on those numbers. And let's carry that reasoning forward. If you have 2.5% of GDP where a 25% tariff is imposed on it, and a tariff is really just another name for a tax, that means that you're raising your effective tax rate. And that's what everybody's so worried about. But how much are you actually raising it? Well, 2.5% of GDP times a 25% tax increase is only an effective tax rate of a little more than half of 1%. It's about 0.652%. Even if that was all absorbed by corporations and they pass none of those extra additional cost of tariffs onto consumers, that means that they would have to absorb somewhere around, you know, rough numbers, $125 billion of new taxes. Well, that's peanuts in comparison from the corporate tax cuts that they just received. The tax reform that's just occurred over this past year, it's lowered the corporate tax rate to about 21%. Prior to these tax cuts, the U.S. corporate rate was 35%. That was a rate that was totally uncompetitive across the entire global business place. That's a nominal real rate reduction of 14%. And so if corporations have received a discount of 14% off their corporate taxes, do you think that they could afford to absorb a six-tenths of 1% tariff-based tax that would be imposed on Chinese imports? I think they can. When you look at these tariffs and this trade war from that perspective and take the hysteria and the media hype away from it, I think you'll see that it's much less of an impact on the economy than what it's being made out to be. And that's, again, why I remain optimistic on this stock market. Well, I've gone really long in this episode, but let me finish up with two quick bonus reasons why I remain optimistic. The number six reason is from a contrarian standpoint, virtually everybody else is negative on this market. And so if everyone else is negative, and if they're negative from more of an emotional-based argument than a rational-based argument. In that case, I think that it makes sense to take the other side of that trade and be very optimistic. If my contrarian view is right, that means that this market is oversold and stocks are on sale. Now, from a final seventh point, I've gone back and looked at some historical comparisons, and not only in looking at policy decisions and who was in the White House and things of that nature, but also looking at the impact 
of what was happening with the rapid change in technology and in particular in global geopolitics. And I know there's been a lot of comparisons between the Trump presidency and other presidencies, but I'll tell you the one that I found the most relevant is comparing Trump to Bill Clinton, factoring in the major advances made in technology and in Bill Clinton's day that had to do with computers and the information age and the amazing advances that were made in things like the internet and telecommunications. That can compare to what's happening now under Trump's presidency, and, and this has nothing to do with either Trump or Bill Clinton. It's just what's happening with technology while they happen to be in office. But right now, we're seeing similar advances taking place with technology when it comes to automation and robotics. And those effects are going to be on scale to what we saw with the technology that took place in the 1990s, if not exceeding it. The other thing is the rapid change that we're seeing in geopolitics. Again, in Bill Clinton's day, that had to do with the ending of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and resulting in the U.S. being the sole superpower, and the literal opening of all global markets. Today's effects in geopolitics are not as dramatic, or at least they're not right now. They could be leading to that, but they're extremely significant, and it's not only what's happening in the United States with the talk of America First policies and the election of Donald Trump, but also what you're seeing across the globe with things like the Brexit and the loss of influence from the OPEC nations. When you look at technology and geopolitics from that angle, I think some definite parallels can be made between Bill Clinton and Donald Trump. And in fact, I've recently put up a video over at YouTube where I've showed the comparison between Bill Clinton's first two years in office and Donald Trump's. And though they're not exact, they are eerily similar and the point I make in that video is that while both of those first two-year terms, we saw some real dramatic and volatile moves in the stock market. Had you gotten negative and sold during Bill Clinton's first two years in office, and there were plenty of reasons to do that, and don't forget, he lost big time in the midterm elections that year, 1994. But what ultimately happened, because of the rapid increases in the change in technology and the shift in global politics... During the eight years of Bill Clinton, the S&P 500 went up over 400%. There were a lot of reasons to panic and sell during that time, but if you held on, you would have made significant profits. Now, I'm not saying that the next six years are going to produce those same results, but what I am saying is what I started out in the beginning of this episode saying, and that's over the next 18 to 24 months, this stock market is positioned to grow. And if it grows at the rates that the analysts are using now, and evaluations hold up to the high levels that they've been over the last 10 to 20 years, then you're looking at an S&P 500 that in the next two years could be somewhere in the range of 3,300 to 3,700. Those are some big numbers. I don't know if it'll work out that way, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility.